Hey there, and welcome to Shadow Facts. That's facts as in horse treat-sized pieces of information, a podcast about Lord of the Rings. But only the horse parts. I'm Joey. And I'm Caitlin. And And this this is is our oath. oath. We vow to discuss every horse mentioned or visible in both the Lord of the Rings books and film adaptations, and we do mean every. We vow to rank every horse seen above. We vow to rewrite one of Tolkien's songs per episode to be about horses, live on the pod. And we vow to answer the call of Gondor when the beacon is lit. By which we, of course, mean answer your questions about Lord of the Rings horses to the best of our ability. excited to be chatting with Ben Moxon. Ben is the GM of the actual play podcast Crudely Drawn Swords and assistant editor of Horsemanship Magazine. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this chance to show my quality. (laughs) (laughs) It's too early to be sad about Faramir. Um, (laughs) But we're always sad about Faramir. Yeah, and that is legit. Yeah. We're, we're so excited to have a professional horse girl. Yes, I, I appreciate it. I didn't realise I was a horse girl until probably talking about this podcast. And they're like, oh, yeah, if I'm like, if Figo yeah. could be a horse girl, I'm a horse girl, clearly. So, horse uh, girl yeah. is a label that transcends gender and time and probably space <laughs> as well. Yes, yeah. and it does it at a canter. Um, <laughs> absolutely yeah what i see we did all this talking and i don't even know where we're starting now <laughs> let's start off um ben if you want to like kind of introduce yeah yourself talk about <clears throat> how you got into horses how you got into lord of the rings yes. tell us your credentials yeah so my, my credentials here are i feel fairly strong i was very much raised on tolkien raised on lord of the rings to the point that I grew up in a house called Rivendell. Oh my gosh! It wasn't. It wasn't in a. Uh, it wasn't in a grand valley with waterfalls. Um, it was a small hut in the forest that had been gradually expanded into a house. In fact, one of my friends once visited when we were at college, and she was like, "You live in a guide hut. You didn't tell me you live in a guide hut." <laughs> but uh, it was. It was quite the place, and so my mum had named it Rivendell. And she's big into Tolkien. One of my earliest memories is listening to the BBC radio adaptations of Lord of the Rings, which is a tremendous adaptation, actually. I recommend listening to it. I also recommend the soundtrack, which is fantastic. I probably listened to that when I was maybe five or six. I didn't really know what was going on, but it was quite exciting. And then as the years went on, I listened to it a lot because... My parents had recorded it off the radio, and when we had long car journeys, it was something that would keep the kids quiet. 
Um, so yes, I got, I got very involved in that story. Yeah, it's it's so interesting hearing that. Like in my mind, when I hear the voices of the characters, I hear the radio versions, definitely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I I know it wasn't I know it was an influence on the films. In fact, Brian Sibley, who adapted it, was involved. I think he wrote the making of the film's book, and I think he was quite involved with that. It, it, he took some of the same decisions that the films made, like cutting Tom Bombadil and the old wood altogether. Um, but the radio production does still encompass some of the things that the films remove, including the harrowing of the Shire, which is really nice to have there. And the cast is amazing. You know, it's of its time. So it's a lot of people that were kind of RSC, uh, National Theatre type actors. Um, So Frodo was Serian Home, who we will recognise as Bilbo Mm -hmm. in the film adaptations. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know that. That's such a cool, like... Yeah. That he got to kind of do both ends of it. I'm sorry. I've been having this thought about Ian Holm for a while now, um, who passed away recently and we never mm-hmm. talked about this on the podcast but i first saw him uh playing pod in the borrowers also yeah. a tiny person and it's just very funny to me that like the roles i know him best in are are just these tiny men <laughs> borrowers and hobbits. he just wow. plays the little guys i, I think the first time i I saw Ian Holmesen was uh, Alien on TV when I was far too young to be oh, watching yes. Alien. <laughs> yeah, um, he he was oh. also his performance in The Fifth Element is not a million where he plays a like I questing monk. I forgot he was in that. Yeah, but his performance there is not a million miles off his Frodo. So uh, oh, okay, he's he's a re- like it's him and then Sam Gamgee was played by, is credited as William Nye, who we now know as Bill, Bill Nye. Nye? Yes. Oh my God. Holy shit. And yeah, and this is a heck of a cast. Um, wow. Yeah. And Gandalf was Michael Horden. I don't know if that name means anything to you. Um, the voice. Not off the top of my head. You might, you would probably know him if you've seen Watership Down. I'm reading Watership Down right now and it, We've talked before about Watership Down being like one of the animated seventies movies yeah. that is like really inappropriate yeah. for children. How and is sorry? How is his last name spelled? H O R D E R N. Oh, in yes. in Watership Down, he on the film of that he does the narration at the beginning. The oh, okay, uh, <clears throat> sure. The whole kind of. Um, Prince with a thousand enemies type thing where he's got that carved gravelly wizard voice. And yeah. yeah, so he's a fantastic Gandalf. And notably also Bilbo was played by John Lemessurier. I don't know if he's as well known to you. Like in this mm-hmm. country, Dad's Army is like such a classic comedy series. And he was one of the main characters in that. Um, he was a tremendous all-round actor, but he he played Bilbo beautifully. And Aragorn wow. was a guy called um, Robert Stevens, who was one of the preeminent um, Shakespearean actors of his day. And so he's he's a bit. My mom always says he's a bit plummy to play Aragorn, and I kind <laughs> of get that. 
Um, yeah. he's, he's kind of, uh, he could use being a bit rougher, especially when he's strider. But it's still, yeah. it's a very strong... Needs some grease on him. Yeah, he really does. Um, <laughs> but he, he was a great actor of his generation. And so it has this good cast. It has a very, you know, it has a 12-hour running time. So they had a bit more latitude to tell the story. And the uh, the narration, a guy called Gerard Murphy did the narration. And it's very kind of, it's a little bit menacing and consistently narrated in that tone. It works really well. So nice. That's so interesting to me because I feel like, this radio play like doesn't get mentioned a lot or isn't really thought about in kind of the um, online Lord of the Rings spaces yeah. that we are familiar with, but yeah. it sounds incredible. Yeah, I would I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely going to listen to that now. It has this wonderful soundtrack by a uh, composer called Stephen Oliver. He was kind of a notable composer in the second half of the 20th century he wrote a lot of operas but he was very much he was very pragmatic he was like we can't be exclusive about art if someone asks me to write a soundtrack for something i'm going to write the soundtrack because that's what a composer does i'm like he saw himself as a craftsman composer yeah i love that a lot of the some of the songs obviously tend to the very operatic um and so you have which I have limited tolerance for, um, <laughs> but it, it like it's pretty good. He has the whole kind of fourth road the king um, in the yeah. like ride of Saedin, and you have quite a lot of those. The melody they put to Gilgalad was an Elven king, is beautiful. So if you ever wondered what it'd be like having Bill Nye sing that to you, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. this is an opportunity. I understand that Bill Nye was once a younger person, but it is impossible for me to imagine <laughs> Sam being portrayed by young Bill Nighy, and I can only see it as Bill Nighy as I understand it now. Yeah. That is, that I, is So legit. some of these actors, I think I've, I'm, I'm guessing, I've seen in some of the, the playing Shakespeare series that I can't remember his name, um, any yeah. of their names. Um, But I watched it in, I mean, I watched excerpts from it in a, because I was part theater major in college and, and watched excerpts in my Shakespeare class. And I know some of those actors were in there. I also realized I saw Michael Hordern most recently in The Slipper and the Rose, a 1970s, yeah, 1976 adaptation of Cinderella that is quite something. (laughs) Is that the one that Ruby's been tweeting about so much? Yeah. Shout out to Ruby. For introducing yeah, me I know the it's and the uh, Robert Stevens. When I was at school, there was a production of Romeo and Juliet, like a film production, not the Baz Luhrmann one, because I was at school before that, and he played the prince in that. So if you've seen the old, I think it's the what? Now this is a deep cut, which probably doesn't translate across <laughs> the Atlantic. But the music okay. from it, the theme from Romeo and Juliet, which I think might be Mancini, 
there's like a love theme which is used on the radio here it was always the bed for like an emotional story was there was this like our tunes thing and this music was always the bed for it and so in that context it's very funny to me because these stories were always a dismal tragedy and it would have this swelling Romeo and Juliet theme under it and now when I hear it I just want to make up the most ridiculous sob story you've ever heard in your life (laughs) but anyway that production Robert Stevens was the prince so that's a really long roundabout trip to get to a very small fact (laughs) which is kind of my uh my way of going it's okay I love how cyclical it is, though. Like, Sir Ian Holmes, like, playing, like, Frodo as a younger man and then Bilbo as an older yeah. man. And, like you said, the um, the person who adapted the script for the radio play, like, coming back and being involved in the new productions. Like, I think that's one of the things that is so cool about Lord of the Rings is I feel like by um, continuing to, like, care about it and, like, pick it apart we're like kind of participating in this tradition and i love how much that carries over to like the people who actually make the things as well yeah that's true you know there's so much love for it over the years um an interesting Mm -hmm. an interesting thing that goes along with uh michael horden apparently hated it he was like I don't do this genre, this is nonsense. And for me, that's very like uh, Sir Alec Guinness hating the Star Wars stuff. <laughs> I mean, like, it's right. just nonsense. Right. I'm like, God, you're in, in one of those... Pe- Which is like the thing you're like most remembered for now. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm like, you're in this definitive performance and you're like, it's rubbish. I don't I don't like it at all. Genre. But, yeah, genre exactly. Stuff. Genre nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was... Uh, that was quite... Um, that's quite odd but anyway yes worth seeking out and worth seeking out on cd certainly it packs with the soundtrack as a last as an extra cd and so you get all these melodies and it has this um it has this theme which has this really steady like like spiccato i guess violin and cello that underlies the whole thing and then uh this kind of deep melody that draws you on and it's just so cool in my mind when i was writing the theme for crudely drawn swords i just lifted that straight because i was like i really want it to be a little bit like the lord of the rings theme (laughs) and uh obviously i'm like not a natural composer so anything i start out with an idea i end up going in a completely unexpected direction i never know where it ends up you could say it was an unexpected journey (laughs) (laughs) yeah i went there didn't come back again (laughs) that was it i'm I'm still there somewhere don't even know where there is honestly um yeah and and his his rohan theme is in that perfect um canter rhythm it's like a diddum 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 that's this uh, yeah, almost like hoofbeats it, it is it is a hoofbeat feel <laughs> it it's just fits so well um so uh which is not say i don't i also love howard shaw and that hardanger fiddle and the king and mm-hmm. the garden golden hall it's so good it's so, it's so good. good you were talking about the howard shaw's theme being like excessively operatic which i'm a sucker for but i was talking about stephen oliver's being very operatic oh oh sorry i see okay okay i mean howard shores is too yeah sometimes in scale but mainly in that there is a motif and a leitmotif for everything imaginable for every character and concept and like thematic element 
uh, which I love. Like, if you want to fall into a Wikipedia hole, go look up the 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 page for the the themes in the Lord of the Rings yeah. score and just mm. scroll endlessly. Yeah, it's quite funny. When I was trying to pick up motifs for characters in Crudely Drawn Swords, we have a character called Tristan. I was like, mm-hmm. Wagner had a character called Tristan. I bet I could create a motif that referenced that and it would sound like <laughs> I was doing something clever. And then I looked at Wagner's motif for Tristan. I was like, alternatively, I could just come up with something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. like, this is, this is more notes than I can read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can make this in a key signature that isn't bullshit. Yeah. yeah. We've heard a lot about your your Lord of the Rings background, and I would love to hear about your horse background. This is a horse podcast? And please give us the horse, horse background the and current, current horses, please. I came to horses really late, and a little like coming to Tolkien early relates to my mum, who's allergic to horses. And so, oh. and so if she's around horses, she starts sneezing. So these days, if I go and visit her, I have to pack a complete change of clothes with no hair on, mm-hmm. which is very difficult, particularly... Do you have any clothes that don't have animal hair on them? Because well, as an animal owner, I, I don't. It depends, it depends on the time of year. But certainly spring and autumn, I think of as seasons of hair on. And then... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Shout out to... Um... Friends at the table. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, it's, it's hard. I did actually used to have a set of clothes I just left at their house that I could change mm-hmm. into when I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my late 20s, I, f- I rode a horse when I was a kid and I was terrified and hated it because it felt so weird. I rode yeah. a house, horse again in my late 20s. I was like, this is interesting. I'm still terrified, but now I want to know more. And I started having riding lessons it was partly because the person that I was seeing at the time had just got a horse and that forced me to be involved. And then I was like, I, I was, and I was a bit afraid of horses. I was like, they're big animals. I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. They're dangerous. I don't know what's going on here. And then at some point I read something, I was reading something about horses that my then partner had. And I was like, oh, they're just big animals that have anxiety. They just, yeah. they just want to get by. And I kind of start, and then I was, and I was like, and actually that's something that we can help with as people. And I started getting more and more interested in that. And because I'd only just begun, I didn't really have any preconceptions. And so I ended up um, falling in with some people who do what uh, then we talk we had this phrase natural horsemanship which has mm-hmm. really fallen by the wayside partly because horsemanship is not by its nature natural and partly because that label was mostly used along with the term horse whisperer like if someone calls themselves a horse whisperer item one they're a charlatan um yeah and natural horsemanship kind of went was going a similar way but a lot of the people that were doing it were actually coming out of a tradition of really western ranch riding horsemanship um and were coming out of a tradition of working with horses 12 hours a day every day and learning to get along with them through observation and through understanding what their needs were and why they behave the way they do 
And for me, starting to learn, that was the perfect place to come in because I didn't have anything to unlearn. But I did feel mm. like I was like 15 years behind everyone else. So I started not long after I got my first horse and I was like, oh, I've got a horse to ride and started learning to ride. And he was he was a really good horse. He was really steady. And I went, uh, I was playing in a band at that time who were moderately serious and we went to play at a music industry thing in Canada. And while we were there, my horse died. And it was the oh. worst week of my life, pretty much. It was as bad. I was an absolute wreck. And I came back and I was like, I don't care about music anymore. I'm interested in horses. Like, this thing has absolutely broken my heart. But also, I need, I need this to be at the centre of my life. And also, I was like... You know, there's, this is a thing I could spend my whole life refining and never get there. It's something I could keep getting better at. And to me, that's really an interesting, an interesting activity is one you can always be better at. Um, there's a fantastic book called True Horsemanship Through Feel by a guy called Bill Dorrance. Probably for me, the definitive book on horsemanship, but it's written as dictated by this 93-year-old California cowboy. It's literally just the words he says. You have to get into his idiom. But it's such a great book. His understanding was so deep. He took in his last rescue horse when he was like 89 or 90. Oh, wow. And he just did amazing stuff with it. And it was so inspiring to me. I was like, I want to be able to do that. I want to have something that I can take my life through. And so over time, I got another horse. I started to get better I was like okay if I want to catch up I'm gonna to have to really go for it so I booked myself for a month in Texas learning to start young colts with uh, one of the best trainers in the world and wow, I was wow. not ready to do that it was an extremely bad decision I was nowhere near ready and uh, and they kind of picked me up put me on these horses taught me to ride them I got bucked off they got me back on. I got bucked off again. After a little while of that, I started to get the hang of it. And uh, by the end of that month, I came home a horseman. And I wasn't one when I went out. And since then, I've tried to continue that. Like, when I have the money to travel, I've travelled to learn with the best people I can find, wherever they are. And so I've travelled to South Australia, to New South Wales, to Arizona... Um, as well as riding with teachers that come over here. And so it's like, now, it's not that I'm expert by the standards of the people I learn with, but most people in the UK don't know you can work a horse the way that I work them, because we're not taught to ride on a loose rein and to try and communicate everything more subtly and to try and work with the horse's mind. If the horse's mind goes where you want to go, they will go there perfectly. And so you're like, if I can send my horse's thought in a direction, what does that feel like to the horse? What does that feel like to me? And so that's really fascinating to me. And But because I've been doing this for a long time, it means I know quite a lot of people around the horsemanship community in this country. And when the people running Horsemanship magazine were looking for someone to take over... My wife had been editing the British Mule Society Journal for a little while. 
And so we went and we talked to them and we decided to pick it up. And so since 2017, we've been edit the editorial team for the magazine. Wow. That's, uh, that's gone out six times a year. We try and make it really interesting. We try and have training and horse keeping and travel accounts and history and biomechanics. We try and have something for everything, but really for the people who want to go on that deep horse geek stuff. That's that's been a big part of our life. And a couple of years ago, after really working at it for 20 plus years, we finally bought a place with some land out in Wales. And so we now live on the hillside and we have a few acres and we have our two horses and two mules living on the hillside. Oh, congratulations. Man, I feel so inspired. I just want to like learn everything about horses now and also ride them. I'm not going to lie. It's the best. (laughs) It is a constant source of whatever else is going on in the world. It's a source of joy. Yeah. So my wife has two mules. A few years ago, one of my teachers was basically retiring from training. And he just put a post on his Facebook page saying, does anyone want a mule? If you can get it into a lorry, you can have it. And I was like, oh, all right. I I asked her, I was like, do you want a mule? And she was like, yeah. So we went over, we took our little horse box over and we loaded up the mule after like, we spent the weekend there teaching him to load, teaching him that trailers were okay, teaching him that he doesn't need to hate me. We got him loaded up in this horse box Closed the ramp, started driving. This was on Dartmoor, which is way out in the southwest of England. So he had quite a long drive home, including going on the traffic jam past Stonehenge. And due to one thing and another, we had very little fuel by the time we started leaving. We needed to get fuel. And so oh, as we started no. leaving, a bit of a furore in the back. And we pull over and the mule is trying to climb over the back bar of the horse box into the back. And break out to freedom. You have to admire the the ingenuity there. Oh, yeah. He was, like, ready to go. If he'd got over it, we would have probably had to get the fire brigade to cut him out. So it's lucky that we caught him in time. And literally, I, for real, and I have not often used this phrase, I did do a full you shall not pass, (laughs) trying to just get him back off this bar and just move away. So um, he was quite determined to do that, but we had to go and get fuel. We couldn't take him back, even though we were now realising our box wasn't suited to this journey. So uh, we got fuel. He was a little more settled. And then my wife had to spend the entire journey in the back of the box with him uh, for the next four hours of driving, including the slow traffic jam past Stonehenge. We got home and we had a mule and uh, that was a learning curve. And what we learned over the next four years is that mules were like, mules are incredibly tough to work with, like much tougher than horses. Mm-hmm. And um, later we got another mule because we're suckers for punishment. And what we learned there was that mule is incredibly difficult. The <laughs> one we had, Marty, he was just so off the scale. And it's not mules in general, it's just that one. So he was really fun and interesting, but he was also a uh, a very, very deep end mule. And he actually spent some time with a friend of ours, he's a trainer. He, he went back to Dartmoor, where our friend's a trainer, and spent a few weeks with her, and that really helped. We would start planning to get him ridden, but actually she got him feeling brave about load leading and 
living his life and surviving in the world. And that was a month of full-time professional work. But it was great because that's what he needed. And now he has a pack saddle. He goes out. He wears that. He's learning to be a packing mule. And he's really happy. And my wife does amazing work with him. I'm so impressed with everything she's put in. You can, anyway, you can learn, learn about their adventures. She keeps a blog called Mulography. <laughs> and so, and it's worth reading. She's a great writer. And a lot of her posts are just very funny. And so you have those two. And then I have a little yellow pony who I got nearly 10 years ago, who was going to go to the meat man pretty much. And yeah. I figured... I helped out with him a bit because they wanted to get him riding so he could go through a sale and maybe do better. And in the end, I was like, well, I like the little guy. For that money, I can pick him up, bring him home, take him on. And then I was like, I'll work him on, find a new home from it for him. At a certain point, he was going really well. And one day his brain fell out and he couldn't remember anything, which is really unusual. Horses retain information really well. Yeah. And I think that there is something quite deep-seated, probably neurological, going on with him. Mm-hmm. One of my friends in the horsey community suggested he may have suffered from fetal anoxia, which is where there's a loss of blood supply prior to birth, mm-hmm. and it can result in effectively brain damage. Wouldn't be surprised if that was up with him. So anyway, I tried to pick up and carry on, and after getting bucked off through a few fences, I was like, you know what? I probably don't need to be riding this horse and he doesn't owe me anything. And so he's been like, he's a great companion horse. You can put him out with people. He'll look after them, but he will also lay down the law. And so he's been with us and he's the horse that you go over to him and he will wicker and he's so cute and he will hug you and he's just the sweetest. So, and he's got such a soft coat. What is his name? Cash. Um, If he'd ever had a show name, I was determined that to call him Prince Cashbian because I thought that would uh, force anyone reading his name to say it in a like Sean Connery accent, which I thought would be quite funny. Um, yeah, he's he's just always been just our companion pony. And then last year, last summer, I lost my beautiful dapple grey Lusitano cross mare. She ran into her final fence which she did quite a lot of times, but last time she did it, she pissed her knee joint and then it never healed. It like she had an operation, flushed the joint, but it never came right. And yeah. in the end, we lost her last summer. I wasn't really looking for another horse, but then the guy who came in to replace our roof said, oh, I've got this little cob called Joey. Do you want a free horse? And I was like, well, the price is right. <laughs> so I went over to see him and he'd been living on his he'd been living out with some cows and no other horses for a long time, which is unhealthy for a horse. And unlike cow pasture, which is profoundly unhealthy for a horse because it's too rich, too much sugar, you have a high risk of them getting laminitic, damaging their feet, foundering. A lot of things can go wrong. But he was also very sweet. And he'd learnt to basically ignore people but also to lick people. Those were his two things he'd really got figured out. And so a few weeks later, he turned up on our yard. He came out and he didn't know what to make of anything. He didn't really know how to socialise. And when he's worried, he because he's a draft type, and draft horses are originally bred to pulp, and so like traditionally he would, the horses like that were the ones that um, drew the caravans for travellers. 
he would have been quite good at that because he's got that push in him. And if he worries, he just walks through with his shoulder. He's actually got a mm. scar on his shoulder where he obviously did that to a fence at some point and must have really made a mess of it. But apparently there's no muscular damage underneath it. It's just a big white mark. And he's an otherwise a black black cob with a uh, two white back feet. And he's a bit small for me. He's like 14 two, so he's pony size. And I'm six foot two, so I'm human size and quite tall. <laughs> oh, but yeah. But he is very, very wide. So he actually takes up all my leg. Uh, so I don't yeah. look that ridiculous. My legs aren't hanging to the ground like they would be if he was a scrawny horse. Yeah. He's, uh, they're, they're like, my legs don't really go past his body. And it's been a lot of fun with him because he's just had to learn to listen. The work I do with him, with the average horse, would put them on the moon just to get him to listen at all. <laughs> I'm like, could you go left? And he's like, oh, maybe. I'm like, right, we're going to go left. I'm waving my arm. I've got like a plastic bag on a stick. I'm swishing up and down. He's like, OK, I guess I'll go left. <laughs> because... A lot of the people I've learnt with have come from this ranching background, this cow horse background. I really like to feel like the horse is a bit on the button and he's not on any buttons or he hasn't been. He's getting there. Like I've, I've had him, I'm getting on for a year now, but he's only really been riding consistently the last six months and he's made huge progress. He's getting so good. And interestingly, as his mind gets softer and he works in balance, he gets kind of more contented. As they learn that they can work this way, they get more content in themselves. Yeah. That's really what I found with him. He's so and he's starting to come out with him come out of himself a bit more. He's kind of a jerk to the other horses though. Again, he's still not his socialization's a bit funny. We took him out for a walk today, him and the little mule. I haven't taken him ridden him off out much, and we're meeting a friend who was riding with us, so we were showing her around some of the local roads. Yeah, the first thing he did was to kick her. I was like, I'm so sorry. This is very awkward. Um, but he was, he's just not... Joey, you're embarrassing. Yeah, he was very embarrassing. And uh, I, I should have stopped him before. But he's generally quite affable. So I was like, I don't think he'd randomly kick a new horse. Now I know he definitely will randomly kick a new horse. I know that for next time. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. so he, 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 showed, he showed me up good. And that's what they do. You can't ever brag on your horse because... You'll pay a price. I, I mean, the whole thing about horsemanship is it's communi- it's it's learning a communication process back and forth, and so you yeah. know that was you give him the back, and that was the force. Yeah, exactly. He was he was just letting me know. Um, he also likes to let me know he's extremely hungry. Mm. Um, yeah, anytime like this class. <laughs> and I <laughs> and I like I like to let him know that I don't care. <laughs> we, we have a job yeah. to do. He can eat later, and that that again. I've owned a cobs before. That is a cob conversation. That's often a draft horse conversation. They need a lot of fuel. And like the classic dichotomy would be between a cold-blooded horse like that and a hot-blooded horse like an, like an Arab who mostly <laughs> just want to go and will tell you everything that's going on. And an Arab is like, oh, my God, there's a leaf. Oh, my God, did you see that? Well, let's run. Let's run some. And a cob will go, I don't care. And somewhere in the middle... There is a perfect horse that is exactly on that balance point that is not too forward or too steady or too sleepy. And different people's, different people's perfect horse is different. I've got friends where that crazy high energy Arab thing is what they love and it fits them yeah. perfectly. I probably am more inclined to the draft side of things. I, I'm kind of 
I'm pretty low energy myself, so I can understand that. But I do actually quite like to be able to move with my horse. Uh, there's a film a few years ago, a film called called Buck came out about a horse trainer. Yes. Buck Brannerman. I and cried during that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's amazing. There's a point in that where he um, he's actually the guy that I went to Texas to learn with. He's one of Buck's immediate peers. So oh, sure. very similar standard and style of horsemanship. Yeah. There's a point in that movie where he just backs his horse up and the horse backs up beautifully and then he springs forward into a canter. And I watched that. I was like, I want to be able to do that. And and actually, with my grey mare, I could. She was a lot. Joey's a long way off that. Joey, we can go back up to a trot in a little while. Um, but mm-hmm. also, that that's like a way of building up. You're like, can you coil this spring and then let it go? And with Joey, he's like, oh, I can go backwards and then forwards. Is that what you wanted? I'm like, not really. I want to more the coiled <laughs> spring, let it go thing. He's like, uh, what about reverse gear, then drive? <laughs> So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, he's, he's a lot of fun. But, yeah, I actually rode with Buck a few years ago. He did a couple of oh clinics in this country. One of the proudest moments of my life after, like, one of the sessions, I was asking him about how to, how best to attach a rope to my saddle. And as he, as we were going out, he was like, you did some nice work out there, Ben. It's like, oh, my God. That, you, I would take that well, to the grave. Exactly. He is not one he is not one of the people who said that's like high praise from any of that group because yeah. those cowboys they don't give compliments lightly and like some nice work is very high praise. So I was really happy with that. Yeah, Joey, you should definitely see this movie. I remember I watched that movie when it came out when I was in college with my roommate who yeah. was like a national saddle seat writer. Um, yeah. And I remember both of us just like crying in the th- in the theater. Oh. It's so good, and yeah, the next day of that clinic, I fell off my horse. The only time I fell off my grey mare, and oh. I fell off. So embarrassing! It was immensely embarrassing. Exactly, there were like two hundred people there in the audience and thirty people in the arena. I fell off because, and this is this is a classic cause. She spooked, and. Because over the course of the clinic, she'd been more anxious than usual and working more than usual. She'd lost a little weight. I just put my cinch up to the usual length rather than checking how tight it was. So she spooked. My saddle went sideways. Basically, you can sit on a lot with a horse. But if the saddle you're sitting on has gone round the side, you're out. There's nothing. You can't can't climb round. And so, uh, yeah, I, I hit the deck and she kind of went holy cow, he's fallen off and also this saddle is slipping around me and just went charging off through this indoor arena, 30 other horses in. And uh, if you imagine someone rolling a bowling ball across a pool table, it was a bit like that, this huge ball of energy and all the other horses absolutely losing the plot. I feel like that's Um, how many of us respond to embarrassment, which is, I would rather be anywhere than here right now. Time to go. Yeah, yeah. And so she did a big set. And it was was really interesting to watch because Buck was able to then talk other people through their horses being in trouble. Really helped them. They were like, just get your horse to follow her. Because when the horse is following the thing, it's not a worry to them. If they're being pushed by it, it feels very different from if they're pushing it. You and just provided she did... everyone else an important learning opportunity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, she came around. His horse didn't move. He was of just course, sat there. He just course. watched, taught people through. She just stopped right in front of him. 
yeah. she was like, this is a still point. This is peaceful. I can do it. Mm-hmm. But wow. beautifully, she and this was a testament to the kind of horse she was, took the saddle off, put it back on. She was fine. She would have mm-hmm. legitimately been unhappy about that saddle going back on. But she was like, no, this is okay. And so and we were able to pick up. But yeah, it was amazing. And ever since then, because the horsemanship community in the UK is quite small, I'd go out and I'd be teaching or something and I'd meet someone and they're like, oh, I was at that clinic. That was you who fell off, was it? <laughs> so, yeah, I was just the guy who fell off. That's like my Aww. main claim to fame now. If it makes you feel better, I have done that exact same thing of like, you know, do the initial like cinch up to just keep the saddle in place while you go yeah. um, like walk to the arena and then very confidently stick a stick a foot in that stirrup and, and push up and just wind up on the ground with the saddle in your hands. Yeah, well, this was it. I, I, the thing is, I was like, oh, yeah, it's always on like the third hole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> rather than going, is this actually tight enough? I do have form for being bad at that, but that was the worst example. And again, it was fine while we were balanced, but when she heard a sound outside the arena and decided to jump sideways, it stopped being fine. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I do have horse credentials. I'll put it that way. I, <laughs> we probably explored those to an entirely unnecessary degree. And I've got to say, when I watched the Lord of the Rings films, I remember, like... There are part, horse parts of those films where I just kind of choke up every time I watch them, even though there's no specific reason. Oh. Like the first time I watched Return of the King, where they all ride out from the uh, encampment, the Rohirrim encampment. Mm-hmm. I was just like, they're so brave. <laughs> just like <laughs> sobbing to myself. Yeah. <laughs> just no, no legitimate reason for it, but... Uh, yeah, that that kind of thing. So it was very inspiring to me. Yeah. yeah. What are some of your other favorite? Unless Caitlin, you have a different question, but I'm. I was gonna, like, I was opening are, my mouth yeah. to ask the same question. Yeah. What are some of your favorite horse moments from the movies? I I love the Brago stuff. I love mm-hmm. the and I I love like I love the Brago. I love the behind the scenes stuff where he's working with with the horse to actually get him feeling okay about like rolling around on the ground. I I think that's absolutely gorgeous. I think there's a lot of the um obviously every time the Rohirrim do a charge it's pretty great. Yeah. Um and I am very partial to the Pelennor fields, the grand huge charge which we haven't gotten to yet. Which you, know. you haven't gotten I know to this yet, exists. but uh, I've seen it before. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh for me, in the films, Bernard Hill is is the true king. And his uh, his whole ride for ruin and the world's ending, mm-hmm. that moment always gets me as well. Yeah. Just just that speech, it's such a uh, it's such a doomed speech. It's such a we have to do this and we have no chance, but we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, which I mean is so much of the books. And it works so well. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I love that. And those wide, wide shots where they're riding to Minas Tirith mm-hmm. and you just have the uh, yeah. those huge landscapes and the white horse and the white rider. Oh, yeah. It's it's just beautiful. Really makes me want to ride through spectacular landscapes, yeah. which, is, uh, which is hard to do here. Do you have any um, criticisms <laughs> of horse moments in the movies um so yeah there's quite a few things there's a few bits where 
I suspect that as fellow horse girls, you may... There's a point where Arwen is like, no, I'm going back. And every time I see that scene, I'm like, get off his mouth. Get off his mouth. Let your reins go. Just let your horse turn round. Because mm-hmm. it's like this, these elven shanked bits, these very elegant, mm-hmm. very long shanked bits. And the way a bit works, the shank creates leverage. It is a lever. Mm-hmm. And so it applies pressure. And that means if you ride with a long shank bit, you're applying way more pressure to the horse's mouth or to the, or the horse's pole, depending on the structure of the headstall. Anytime you see mm-hmm. someone pick up the rein of the horse mm-hmm. and the horse opens its mouth, either the horse doesn't really understand the bit or they're putting way too much pressure on. And in that scene, you see the horse opening its mouth and like going, blah, 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 and you can see you're like, just, just ask. Mm-hmm. Trying to relieve some of that pressure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we do see a lot of people writing kind mm-hmm. of in like what I from my like ancient dressage days think of as like two point where um yeah but only only hand wise where they have really really tight reins and the 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 reins have strayed very far up the horse's neck yeah and there's actually the person that we're going for a walk with today funnily enough has done a lot of reenacting and they Hmm. talked about and they did like english civil war cavalry stuff and they were talking about how the horses Mm -hmm. they ride there were in an English one-handed riding style, which has a much shorter rein. So the rein is short, but in one hand with a contact. Oh, to me, as someone who works in a more of a yeah. Western approach, yeah. that doesn't seem very practical. Yeah. And one of the guys I've learnt with, he's like a California Bacaro, really deep in that tradition. But he's also into like historical combat reconstruction and jousting. And so he does a lot of work on, like, with museum piece bits and th- and saddles, mm-hmm. examining how they work biomechanically. And some of the things he's picked up on are that, particularly on the earlier bits, the earlier bits that were used in cavalry riding, they were actually designed to be used very subtly because the knight had a shield on their arm. You can't really... You need your shield to be doing things. Yeah. So you have to actually be able to be quite subtle with the bit. And you need your other hand for your lance or your sword or your um, mace. Mm -hmm. So you're actually having... You have to be able to be subtle with your hand. And also you're riding a war horse. And this is something that you can't see captured in films. The way that a horse could move in battle they were also part of a knight's armament. So they would strike, they would kick, they would bite. You didn't want to get close to a war horse. And there's simply no safe way to make that happen on a film set. Well, and it's not really written into like how... No. Like with the exception of we do see Shadowfax doing some of that in Return of the King. Most of like horse warfare is... Like, the charge itself, and then lots of people, like, doing these big, like, yeah. overhanded swings from the horse. Yes. And that also would have happened. But the biggest advantage a horse gives you is constant irresistible motion. Um, yeah. if, irresistible so, motion. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if, if people are interested in that, in some of the historical side of that, there's a guy called Arnie Coots, uh, which is spelt A-R-N-E. K-O-E-T-S. I think he's Dutch. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a Dutch last name. 
Yeah, he knows. He has a huge wealth of knowledge. Keelan is making fun of me because I'm Dutch yeah. and I do this. I just identify uh, Dutch, Dutch or Dutch I'm like, oh, that sounds Dutch. <laughs> That's Dutch. <laughs> um, so he's he's a real authority on that, and he's doing a lot of work on reconstructing Pluvinel and some of these early some of the early dressage writers when dressage was a martial art. And this is one of the funny things about the Olympics now: dressage was a martial art. And now everyone's like, oh, it's the horses skipping. Right. Yeah, the popular imagination of it is like a very decorative kind of superfluous yeah. thing. Yeah, so it's, it's like that's, dance, basically. It is. Horse, horse dancing is what yeah. I hear it referred to yeah. a lot. But yeah, that's that's interesting. That's a whole element that I never really thought of yeah. as applied to Lord of the Rings is like the, the differences that have happened over time, both in terms of like you're talking about like the biomechanics of like what different bits and different tack how that actually mechanically changes writing and the different styles and like understanding of um horsemanship at the time and like how that would change yeah i'm sure they had someone on set whose job it was to like conceive of that but that's not really available um as a watcher or in the extended edition behind the scenes stuff but i'm very curious about it yeah that it's really interesting isn't it because the people who do do horse wrangling for films they know a lot of stuff they're really good at their jobs my wife when i first knew her she was working for a shire team there aren't that many shire teams and there aren't that many good drivers in the uk so they would often be called on to do extra work as drivers if you have something with a horse and carriage like again i'm sure this is a common horse girl experience you watch a period drama and you notice the same horse and carriage going past five times you're like wait a second behind sherlock holmes i've just seen the same horse go past 15 times what's that horse doing right (laughs) yeah there's so much knowledge in those people and you can bet they were thinking about it but also you're thinking you're working with what you have so you know they had almost anyone who could sit on a horse in New Zealand doing the uh yeah doing that but you actually see a tiny bit more of it if I may mention it without causing offense you see a tiny bit more of it in the first Hobbit movie Mm. Uh, I'm so sorry oh no it's okay it's fine it's for a good cause yeah yeah where they come into Rivendell and the elves do that like almost passage circle around them that really tight circle and they're all on like Frisian I think it's like fancy Frisian type black horses I'm either thinking Frisians or grey Andalusian types I don't recall which but it's that real kind of um, stylish movement yeah Yeah, show horse stuff Um, but that's the only time you really see it and that's a lot easier to do but also in terms of the writing you've got to think that Tolkien belonged to a cavalry regiment I read one thing that suggested he was very keen on horses. He helped work the young stock. But then I read other sources saying that that source that said that was probably wrong. So I don't know where I stand on that. I want to believe it. But um, but I do think that he he writes from as someone who knew horses. But the period in which he would have ridden, cavalry was used mostly for charging. And that obviously didn't work very well in a world of barbed wire and machine guns, um, which is a lot of what we, you know, that's a lot of why cavalry fell out of use. There's a book I read written, a contemporary book written at the time saying basically 
the use you should be putting horses to is not charging. It should be as dragoons. Um, a guy called Roger Pocock, who was a really interesting writer, quite off-the-wall guy. He wrote an account of riding down the Rockies, I believe, from like Canada to Mexico in the, mid, in the late 19th mm. century. Um, and so he like, met the Hole in the Wall <clears throat> gang and things like that. Real great and very like Victorian, but a very funny writer. Yeah. And he wrote this book on horses. And he was saying that really the way horses were being used in war was a disaster. They could be used more effectively to get people quickly in position in unexpected ways and to use the terrain and things like that. And you're like, yeah, I can, in retrospect, he was probably right. Yeah, that actually, it makes me think about the Helm's Deep stuff where like Theoden and and the Rohirrim are so frustrated at, you know, being sort of besieged because they can't use their horses. Yeah. And, and like knowing, you know, a little more about Tolkien's experience with that, like that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's really interesting as well. Like, and it's something I thought about listening to one of your earlier episodes mm-hmm. where you're talking about they're entering the northern Rohan mm-hmm. and it was only a few like effectively herders who were coming through with their horses and grazing these otherwise empty lands. And that made me think an interesting counterpoint to obviously Tolkien makes them tall and blonde and blue eyed and all of this. Right. But the way in which his descriptions of orcs tend towards racism tends to be against Asian people. Right. But the Rohirrim are much more like a steppe people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In all practical regards, this is like... Yeah. These are steppe nomads. They're horse, horse-herding travellers living in wide-open grasslands. Yeah. And they're horseback archers. You think about the like the writing the writing traditions of like Mongolian people. High on the list of places I super want to visit. Yeah. Going back some distance, another of my favourite moments is in I think it's the battle in the night where Merry and Pippin are escaping. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And you just get this brilliant silhouette mm, yeah. of a Mongolian archer turned completely around in the saddle, shooting backwards. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that position is why the English saddle is the shape it is. Oh, sure. Because it's originally a Hungarian saddle. The English saddle mm-hmm. design is Hungarian. It was designed so an archer could turn right the way around in the saddle. Or oh, that's part mm-hmm. of that type of design. Mm-hmm. Um, the other reason is it's easy to fall off. I got an English saddle for my horse and uh, I turned up to clinic with my mentor who's one of these proper cowboy-type trainers, is like, oh, see, you got one of them self-emptying saddles? Um, <laughs> but, but that is actually part of the design, because if you're riding in the English tradition, one of the things you're likely to be doing is riding your horse very fast over hedges. And if your horse falls over, you don't want to be stuck to it. Right, yeah. And so actually a saddle that gets you right out is quite uh-huh. a survival trait. But if you look at a knight's saddle, those were deep. Yeah, with the high cantles to kind of hold you yeah, in it. Yeah, the high pommel and cantle, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, I believe that one of the Williams, I think it was William I, possibly died after an injury involving the pommel of his saddle. Oh. 
he kind of injured himself on his saddle horn and died. Ah. That'll uh, that'll land him for the harrowing of the North. This is very funny, actually, because it reminds me of like, so my brother used to skateboard when he was younger. And, you know, Mm. my parents were always concerned about like the safety of that. But I remember him talking about how like a razor scooter or like rollerblades were more dangerous because with a skateboard, like you You can bail. Right, you detach from it really easily, whereas like with rollerblades, yeah. they are stuck to your feet, and it's—I mean—it's the same conversation. It really is um, about saddles. It, it makes me think of when I was like a kid and going to horsemanship camp. It was split fifty-fifty. It's all Western riding between um, like mm-hmm. trail yeah. rides and arena riding, and mm-hmm. yeah, invariably, like we—you do like one day of the week, you do bareback riding, and of course, you know, it's the horse is going up to the sand arena yeah. bareback, like the horse wants to roll, and like mm. uh, oh, the, yeah. we always had to have the talk before bareback day about like, okay, here are the signs you need to look for if your horse is going to roll, and if they're going to roll, <laughs> you got to jump, you got to get out of there. <laughs> and uh, it just like it makes me feel like fourteen again, and like being ready to like up to yeah. to, bail, yeah. to bail when necessary. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, my mentor, the guy I was talking about, mm-hmm. he's a guy called Steve Halfpenny. Good good Hobbit name. That is. Um, but he is six foot eight, so oh not a very, very Hobbitish guy. Wow. Yeah, he looks he looks very funny sat on a small horse. Yeah, um, I thought I looked goofy on my like fourteen hand horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he really does. But you know, he's a great trainer. He does. He's done a lot of cult starting down the years, and he starts them bareback. Mm. So he does the first rides bareback because he says, firstly, he knows if they're worried about him or the saddle. Oh, and second, sure. if something bad's going to happen, he can just get out. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you're on the saddle, you have a much bigger chance of getting hung up. Yeah. And then you have to so, worry uh, about the horse either doing damage to itself or to the tack. Yeah, you know, if exactly. It's, if it's rolling or rubbing. Yeah. And and so, uh, yeah, I, I find that really interesting. But also, if I'm starting a horse, I do like to have a saddle because I don't ride bareback as well as he does. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh... yeah. yeah, I've 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 really only ridden bareback a handful of times um, in my life. I was much more accustomed yeah. to my dressage teacher, which is good training. But I also I always regarded it as torture it would always make me ride at like English without stirrups, like specifically like, OK, it's yeah. time like. It's time to post without stirrups. And it was just like, you know, tears. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's so good for you, though. Like the other the other foundation of my riding is that I found a riding instructor who did lunge lessons. Oh, um, sure. And in fact, his teacher had done had learned in the 50s at the Spanish riding school. So mm-hmm. it was very classical. I didn't have stirrups. I didn't have reins. We went round on the lunge until my seat was good in walk. And then until my seat was good in trot, and then until my yeah. seat was okay yeah. in can, in canter. <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, but it was, you know, it was really a lot of work. But a lot of it is like physical strength. A lot of it is giving to the horse. Like what I learned in riding, and this is something you look at when you watch a rider. I feel like from my midriff, from below my ribs to my knee should be part of the horse. Yeah. So everywhere the horse is moving, that should be able to move. And then what's above that should be able to stay as far as possible still. And so my hands and 
the reins should be still, they shouldn't be influenced by the horse's movement, but I should be able to go with it. So I'm never impeding the horse, but I'm always f- allowing it to be free. I'm always allowing it to be clear. Yeah. My my riding instructor always described that as, um, she, she called it wet dish ragging, yeah. where, <laughs> which doesn't sound very good, but it's about like letting... Uh, letting your like weight relax and settle like a lot of people's tendency and you see this a lot actually with um with people riding in these movies is they get the high heels because their legs are are tensed and they're trying to grip with their legs and so instead of letting the weight settle into their heels they're they're kind of pulling them up and tensing yeah and it's so and that's as you learn it's interesting because that's such a counterintuitive thing you're like my heels coming up i'm getting out of the saddle but I feel like I should be more secure. Mm-hmm. Like you're in your mind, you're sort of like, this should be more secure. But if your heels no, down, if you're that, deep. That is a great way to bounce yourself right out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly it. And when you learn, you lose that. You don't get that for a long time. You want to go fetal. If anything happens, you're like, I want to curl up. And I still have that instinct. I like sometimes something happens. I'm like, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. And that that's Again, that's probably because I haven't ridden enough Arabians. But <laughs> yeah, so so it's really, uh, it's good discipline to... And also, I remember when I was in Texas, I'm riding this little young quarter horse colt who's just got faster and faster and then started bucking. Oh. And the guy we're learning with is just like going, Ben, relax, just relax. I'm like... Yeah, that's really easy for you to say. (laughs) But but actually, I I managed to force myself into relaxation. And sure enough, the horse came right down. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's a very nuanced thing. And so I don't want to flatten it into like, you get out what you put in. But like, there, there really is a certain, like, it is communication both ways. And people who are very anxious or very frustrated while riding like your horse absolutely picks up on that and like reacts to it it really does and it's something that and that has been good for me because i've learned to let go of frustration i've learned to let go of a lot of emotions and to become much Mm. more calm in the way i respond and i am around horses there's a thing that i really thought about when i was reading the uh, chapter at the black gate Mm-hmm. A thing that happens with horses, I find, is that sometimes you just, the way to be kind is to firm up. Yeah. And you're like, no, there is a clear line here and you're not going to cross it. And that's what the horse needs to hear. And there's a point where Frodo does that in the way he deals with Gollum. And, yeah. and Sam's like, it says, Sam had thought his master's kindness came with a certain degree of blindness. Yes. Yeah, And you're like, no, yeah. there is a different way of being kind that he's exemplifying here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that was, I was like, that's a moment of horsemanship. Because I, I want to be kind and I want to be giving. And when I'm dealing with a horse, that's not giving, like gentleness doesn't work with them. They don't care about gentleness. Not certainly at first. If they're afraid, they want to know what the deal is. They want to know what's going on. And if I can be clear but unemotional, and what I learned to do was to put myself into the position of being like the scenery. I'm like, mm-hmm. if I'm a rock and you're jumping around and bucking and waving your feet in the air, I wouldn't do anything, but it wouldn't benefit you. I'm just here. I'm just going to show you uh, there's a way for you to get a good deal. 
but I'm not going to, and I'm not going to buy into all that drama that's going on there. If you try and come close, I might get a little bit noisy to remind you that I feel safer when you're a little further away. But I don't need to. I don't need to engage with it. I just need to keep saying, "Hey, there's a quiet place. There's a quiet place on the end of this road. Why don't you just look for it?" Yeah. And after a while, they learn to look for it. And once they start to know it's there, they seek it. And then you start having that. Then they start being able to reflect each other. Horses reflect. When you say it's a two-way communication, think about a herd of gazelles. Horses are prey animals like gazelles. If one gazelle runs, they all run and they fall into step and it confuses predators. Horses do the same. When you watch a coach and four, those horses will be in step. Because they fall into step, it's how they reflect. And often, you can walk with a horse and fall in step with them. Mm -hmm. And then if you speed up your feet, they'll start speeding up with you. And if you slow down, they'll start slowing down with you. And that's something I use the whole time. It's a long, long time since I walked near a horse and wasn't in time with them. Yeah, it's really interesting because so like I just got my master's degree in social work and, um, you know, going to become a therapist and have done a lot of work with kids and teens and all of the stuff about like mirror neurons and sort of co-regulating with kids is a lot of the same stuff with horses because like you're you're living beings and if you can like recognize what's going on in yourself internally and like calm it down and stay regulated then then the kid you're working with starts i mean literally because we have neurons in our brains that mirror each other start also calming down and and you create this this sync between the two of you I feel like, weirdly, this is a thing that I understand about horsemanship now as an adult who does not ride that I really (laughs) struggled with when I was a younger person and was taking regular lessons and I had a really hard time with, is that it's very easy to kind of misunderstand control while riding to be physical control, which is an element of it, but it really is much more about that kind of, like, emotional uh, and mental control about, like, control, about, like, controlling what you're doing and asking for in a really really clear way that can be understandable and then having that Mm -hmm. back and forth and that that is that is really hard especially like I remember when I was a teen like part of why I stopped writing is I was just so I was I would get so frustrated and kind of be like unable to work through that Mm -hmm. um and so I feel like that's like a thing that I like understand about writing now (laughs) that I'm not writing if that makes sense but I think a lot of people Uh, Both like me, like as a young amateur writer and people who don't know anything about horse, about horses or about horsemanship, look at it and think it's a thing about physical control, about like you, you having physical control over the horse, which you can to an extent, but they're such a strong animal. Like if a horse decides that it's going to rip the reins out of your hands, it's going to rip the reins out of your hands. Like you are not stronger than that horse in its mouth or its neck. Exactly. And and it's also, there is a degree to which people have an idea of physical control that you can force horses, but you can never force a horse to be beautiful. Mm. And there is so much beauty available if you can go with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a trainer I was riding with a couple of years ago, and my horse was like getting really bothered in one corner of this arena there was just some stuff there that she didn't really like and she was a little flighty anyway i just asked him how do i get this horse to how do i get my horse to feel better about this and he was like 
Why don't you just let her carry you away from it? Mm-hmm. She doesn't feel good, her. Let her know that you'll let her get to her safety. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> Every time I think I'm getting somewhere, I see there's another layer to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this guy, he's, he's, another, he's another of that group that Buck and mm-hmm. Martin, who I rode with in Texas, belong to. Um, but he's just one of the kindest people I've ever met. And he just, he's so kind and so smart in the way it explains it. But he's like, just let the horse do what they need to and let them think that you help them. Mm-hmm. And then they will see that you are someone who helps. Yeah. God, I'm having like big feelings now about how, like, both in horsemanship and in Lord of the Rings and in many things in life, there there's kind of like these false illusions of control. And the only way to really actually have that control is through like greater depths of empathy. It really is. And and it's also in, I think, identifying where the control matters. It's all right to say, I don't control this. And where yeah. you have no choice but to say, I don't control this. This is a river that we're traveling down. And one way or another, we've got to get down it. And sometimes that's all you've got. But even on a pretty wild river, you can usually improvise a rudder somehow. You can find a way to direct it the flow a little. And that's with horses the more trust you build and mules take it further mules have hybrid vigor which means because they're a hybrid they're not a true species they have half donkey a mule is half donkey half horse their mother is a horse if their mother is a donkey it's a hinny yeah and a mule and a hinny is a little different mules tend to have more of a horse body and donkey head and legs Mm-hmm. Hinnies often have more horse-like head and legs and donkey body. So people tend to breed mules because they're more practical for riding. Yeah. But they're also smarter than either a horse or a donkey. And they learn so fast. If you got everything right first time, life with a mule would be real easy. Mm-hmm. But if you get anything wrong once, they will remind you about it for the rest right. of your life. <laughs> They'll be like, but do you remember that one time? And you're like, please, please, I'm so tired. This is so interesting to me because I don't have I don't have any uh, like real world experience with mules or donkeys. I guess I yeah. that's not true. I've worked with like donkeys at petting zoos, which is not working yeah. with in any you know like work capacity. But I have no no practical experience with mules. I rode a mule for four hours once on <laughs> um, at at Yosemite in California. Oh, sure. yeah. I I signed up to do like a mule ride, like you know, part way up a mountain and back down. That was like a half day thing, and it was really cool. I did that as well. That was in that fact my great. entire mule experience prior to getting a mule. <laughs> so what you're saying is it could happen to either of us any day. It, just oh, man, be aware. I would love to get a mule. Um, <laughs> We we went a couple of years ago. We went to an international packing day in the Austrian Alps. Oh wow! And our, our friend invited us, and she lent us a donkey. She's got a little donkey and a beauty. She has a thoroughbred mule, so oh. the horse part is a thoroughbred. Mm-hmm. She does yeah. eventing on this mule. She is beautiful. She's an extraordinary animal, and she also has a little black furry, like dark chocolate brown furry donkey. And he's the cutest. And we borrowed him and like went climbing in the Alps with him. It was so great. But donkeys operate on donkey time. 
mm-hmm. they don't really feel like there's any uh, any important reason why they should hurry if they don't want to. Yeah. Um, mules, like, you can't keep working on one thing for too long because they'll get bored. Mm-hmm. The minute a mule gets it right, change it. Whereas with a horse, you might try for a little longer. Though. Actually, with a horse, if you change the minute they get it right, you'll probably benefit. But with a mule, you have to. Mm-hmm. And they're so smart and they learn fast and they have like hybrid vigor makes them both stronger and more intelligent and to a degree more resilient, like physically, their immune system is pretty good. They they kind of get a lot of benefits, but you have this saying, as stubborn as, stubborn as a mule. Mm-hmm. And whenever people go, oh, you have mules, are they really stubborn? They aren't stubborn, but... They won't do it just because you said. Like you got to give them a good reason. You got to you've got to show the paperwork. You got to show you're working. <laughs> you got to come in with it signed in triplicate. Make it very very clear that this is important and they need to do it. Or you have to be their human. And mm-hmm. mules more sure. than horses will adopt a person. Horses are more herd animals, so they kind of work more with different people. Mules take from their donkey side that they're a little more solitary or that they tend to pair bond and they will bond with a human and that will be their human and for that human they'll do almost anything. Wow, it's like, it sounds more like falconry than horsemanship. Yeah, it's 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 almost like it. Um, for her blog, Sari does, like, interviews mule owners quite a bit mm-hmm. and some of the stories they have of things their mules have done for them are incredible. There's one lady whose mule saw off a mountain lion. Wow. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. They are smart and they are so loyal, but you yeah. have to earn it. They won't, they won't give it to you just because you're there. It's much easier to get on a horse you don't know and go, hey, I know what I'm doing, let's go. And the horse is like, okay, you seem to know what you're doing. Yeah. Mule, yeah. mule, you need some time yeah. and they need to know mm-hmm. that you're good. But when they do, Wow, they will do an amazing job. Wow. That's a different thing. I'm having so many feelings about horses and mules. Yeah. <laughs> the the state I'm from, like one of the things that it's known for, um, like historically is mule logging. Oh wow, yeah. And it makes me retroactively like more curious about it than I was when I lived there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I equines are great for logging anyway. Mm-hmm here particularly a lot of the time people are doing work in like old forest that needs to be preserved Mm -hmm. and so if you're doing that you're much better having a horse or mule drag your logs out than you are using a motorized vehicle because they can walk through a forest floor and not destroy it right Mm -hmm. so actually they're very practical in that kind of work and also mules like on this packing meet, there was a mule packer from Washington, as in the state, not the mm-hmm. town. Yeah. Um, and the work they did was a little like a helicopter on a budget. <laughs> you know, they were they would they would be packing trail materials and things right up into the mountains, including telegraph poles. Wow. They'd wow. have a, two telegraph poles between two mules. Yeah. Like one at each end just carrying these poles up into the mountains. And he said, it works great, but you just don't want too many tight corners. Yeah. Um, no <laughs> because you've got a long vehicle there. 
but yeah, you know, mules are really practical animals. So yeah, it reminds me of I I don't um know how close you closely you follow American politics, but um our postal service oh, is in crisis right now. Yeah. Um, and so there's kind of a sudden like drumming up of public interest in in the post office, and one of the things that's been going around recently is a really cool kind of in-depth story about um, places in the United States where mail is delivered only by mules. So for instance, there's a post office in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, which is part of a reservation. And the only way that they're able to get like mail and supplies in and out is there's, there's a, a pack train of 10 mules that does two hours from the top of the Canyon down to the bottom of the Canyon every single day there and back. That's so cool. Isn't it? Yeah. There were, there was a project and now I don't remember where, I want to say either America or the Himalayas. Either America historically or the Himalayas more recently. So, you know, that's a range of places. Mm-hmm. Basically somewhere, somewhere mountainous, um, where they were doing libraries on mules. Oh. They were literally loading them up with books and taking them to places mm-hmm. where you couldn't get books from the library. That is so cool. It really is, isn't it? And they're like old photos of these like mules with their like book panniers. I want to play uh, that, that RPG can't open character. Up shells. I know, isn't it great? So yeah. uh yeah, so mules underrated animals. Yeah, truly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey Tolkien, okay, where's I have the a... mules? Where are the mules, Tolkien? <laughs> um okay, um I have a question for you, Ben. Yes. Have you heard of podcast ghost syndrome? Um, I have not heard of podcast ghost syndrome, no. Oh, it looks like Joey hasn't either. So, <laughs> I don't know so what be- you're talking about. Okay, so being a podcast ghost is when you're listening to a podcast and f- feel like a ghost in the room and screaming oh, because you yes, know okay. something that the oh, hosts yes. don't know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. this is you- going to be my next question too, in different words. <laughs> uh, because Joey and I share like the same four brain cells and are just constantly playing racquetball with them back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, have you had any like big moments of podcast ghost syndrome listening to our podcast where we get something wrong about horses or where you have like, you know, the the interesting thing to like add or clarify? Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us what seal brown really means? <laughs> yeah, what is seal- Please, we are begging you. What does seal brown mean? Yeah. <laughs> um- Seal brown is uh, not a colour widely described in the, widely used in the equestrian community. I had only heard of it thanks to you guys. I think we have really inflated its usage. I think you may have used it. I think you may have made it up, honestly. (laughs) I didn't check who created the Wikipedia page, but uh, could it be you guys? It's possible. I think there was one of the points on the early one in one of the early ones where you're talking about Tolkien's relationship with horses. And I really wanted to be like, yes, he was a cavalry officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I don't think I knew that. It was. I it, knew he had fought in the war, but I didn't yeah. know in what capacity. No, he fought in the war and I believe he was, I think he lost most of his friends in the war. Um, mm. A lot of his peers went to war and their like student dream was to create a new English mythology. And he came out of the war feeling that weight on his shoulders because the people he would have worked with were lost in the war. I think he also met his wife in hospital there and that that Mm. relationship, I have heard, is one of the reasons that Faramir is something of a self-insert. Oh, I read that he met his wife in an orphanage like prior 
like Maybe as a teenager did. this this could well be correct this is like <laughs> some, I, I definitely remember reading a few things where it was saying that that faramir Eowyn relationship was a bit of self-insert which to be fair if you write your wife as Eowyn mm. fair play um yeah. that's that's five that's five I also points. have that it's called fan fiction <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> um so that was one and there's a few bits where that I don't recall now where I was definitely listening and there, there were some points where I was like hard agree like uh when she's escaping from the Nazgul and you're like, yeah, and she if has you her really horse need to get away, reins. let the reins be long. Um, yeah. It's funny, yeah. if you ever watch people doing reined cow horse, which I recommend watching a round of reined cow horse, because that's really awesome. Um, when they want to go fast, those guys have their hand as far forwards as it'll reach, right over the horse's ears. And yes. they're just winging it along. I'm like, if I wanted to go fast, I would probably be doing that, not hanging on for dear life. <laughs> yeah. I have I had a very very brief foray into barrel racing. Oh yeah. Um, which is great because if you have a good barrel racing horse, um, yeah. there's there's not that much required of you to to, to do it for fun and pleasure, not for yeah. you know competition. Um, and yeah, and the big thing is like you you give the horse their head and let them do yeah. their thing. Yeah, you just got to stay above them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, your your job is to lean lean the appropriate ways and like stay the fuck out yeah. of the way. So so there's there's a funny thing actually about cutting horses like that. Oh sure. Cutting horses know their job. Yeah. And cutting was a discipline invented by some very smart trainers who wanted to be able to train horses for people, then put that person on the horse for five minutes and they could win because the horse knew the job. So it was like a great way to do a competition for rich people who wanted to pay for horses to be trained and win and not have to actually do the work. Yeah. And that's why that that equestrian discipline exists. Um, That's great. So, so yeah, I would say there are more hard degrees. I don't, I can't think of obvious points where I was like uh, thinking of where you said something. I was like, "There's a thing missing here." There definitely have been, but I can't remember them now. <laughs> so they can't be that big. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel good. It, it has been interesting because, like I said at the top, like both of us. I mean, Joey knows many things about many things. Joey's a very knowledgeable person in general. But this project has been really fun because it feels like you're. I'm really like coming up against the the edges of my yeah. knowledge in a way that is really yeah. satisfying. Like these things that I thought that I understood from earlier life and going back to them and being like, oh, wait, like this is way more complicated than I thought it was. Sometimes in a way that is frustrating. Like I would like a simple <laughs> answer about horse colors, please. Yeah, yeah, there, there yeah. are no simple answers. Yeah, that's, I mean, both in the world and especially about horses. Like, good God. Yeah, yeah. And I, our big mule is Silver Dapple. I don't think that colour's showed up yet. But uh, in fact, I was thinking about it. No. Also, not many Palominos in Lord of the Rings. No, very, like, um, very few. But also, I don't yeah, think I many Palominos like... in New Zealand. Like, New Zealand horses, there aren't that, like, there's a lot of, they tend towards a scrubby thoroughbred type build. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact... Do you have the phrase "in good nick" to mean something's no. uh, something's in good condition? Uh, in no. the UK, you'd say, "Oh, that car's in good nick." Apparently, I was looking at this years ago. I was like, "Why do people say in good nick?" And apparently, it started from the oldest attestation is from uh, is about a New Zealand 
racehorse. Oh. And the suspicion is that they were saying it's in good neck, as uh-huh. in it's got mm-hmm. a good neck, it's in good shape. It's good confirmation, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But because of the uh, New Zealand accent, it sounded like in good nick, and someone wrote that down, and that became the phrase. Wow. And I'm like, that's, that's the pretty wild. language is such bullshit. I love it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fantastic. And also, it's great that uh, if you have a saying, the chances are 50-50 pretty much. It, well, let's say 40-40, it'll be sailing horses or 20% maybe some other thing. Yeah, but it's so much of the time it'll either be a question or it'll be sailing yeah. originated phrases. Yeah, it is. It is interesting how much of it comes from these things that are really, really divorced from most people's like day to day life. Yeah, and and yet they they were everyone, and this is the thing. Like the horsemanship I do comes from very much from a working background. It comes from California and Nevada, and. The people who are doing it, you know, in Nevada, it's a buckaroo. In California, it's a buquero. Mm-hmm. And that's a Spanish word for cowboy, basically. Mm-hmm. But these were Hispanic people. In the, Originally, there are a lot of people of colour. There are a lot of Native American people who became cowboys were doing this work. And yeah. uh, partly because a lot of them were incredible riders. And so this tradition was a synthesis of a lot of different people that were otherwise excluded. And so much of that has been excluded from history. Yeah, yeah. Our our understanding of the cowboy is very much yeah. like as a white man, which is not, yeah. not historically true. Yeah, exactly. But it has survived because it became a tradition to a degree, the work that these people were doing. But all around the world, working class people were working horses, were driving, were riding, were droving. They were doing all this work and it's all been lost because it wasn't what posh people did. What right. do we have now? We have show jumping and cross country and dressage. Right. The average rider never did that, but I yeah. bet they did incredible work. I, I talked to someone based in Sweden who was doing logging and they said their dad used to be cutting wood. He'd chain it up to the horse He'd leave the horse to just go off back to the house. His son would unchain the log, stow all the stuff, Incredible. and just send and the just horse send back. The horse and the horse back. knew their job. They just did it of their own accord. There is a deep legacy of history and tradition and skill, incredible skill that we just lost because the people yeah. who did it, nev- their voices never got recorded. I always think yeah. that's really sad. Mm. Anyway, that's completely by the by. There was something I suddenly thought of then. that yeah. it's okay. <laughs> to, it's something to look out for. Uh, getting back vaguely towards the topic, ahead of the paths of the dead, if you watch what they're doing, you can see the people handling the agitated horses, cueing them to back up and to rear. And oh, so yeah. if you watch their movements, you can see they're like, oh, come here. And they've actually, their body language is saying, go back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like quite a nice little combination of acting and of actually putting in the performance to give one impression and to be telling the horse the other thing. Yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about this with um, 
Brago's introduction where he's rearing in the in the stable. Yeah. yeah, that like if you were actually trying to calm that horse down and make it stop rearing, that's not what you would like. You wouldn't be yanking like that and yeah, you know exactly. cueing them. Well, what always else. calms me down when I'm agitated is when pe- is people are pulling my head in opposite directions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very <laughs> it's very soothing. Um, it it yeah. reminds me of of um, doing like trail rides with like people who haven't ride before haven't ridden before and are anxious and um are upset because their horse is walking backwards and they also have their yeah. reins like in their yeah, belly they're button like pulling yeah. backwards yeah yeah it's it, it's uh, it's a very classic thing but yeah the nice thing about that is you can see ev- it's all on screen at once so you actually mm. can really see what they're up to a lot of the time mm-hmm. you will have someone off screen telling the horse to do right. the mark mm-hmm. yeah or or even or even like brago they talked they talked in one of the blogs about Brago, the horse actor who plays Brago, like hitting his marks. And what he's actually doing, yeah. like below the shot, is like smacking his hoofs on like a piece of wood so that he hears the sound. And that's like part of how yeah. he does his cue and how. Right, Joey? Am I or am I misrepresenting? I that? think that was one of the horses that played Shadowfax. Not oh, you yes. I'm right. sorry. You're yeah. totally yeah. right. The yeah. horse yeah. who played Shadowfax. On, yes, on Ian McKellen's blog. But yeah. There's something about having that in the open as opposed to kind of the various ways that you camouflage yeah, that keep work. It, mm-hmm. Keep it out of shot. Yeah. And so it's quite it's quite nice to see it. And one of the things as well, I think they talk about this in the uh behind the scenes documentaries, but horses learn the word action. Oh, and they get really yeah. excited. Yeah. So um and this is like other people I know who've worked in films uh have said the same thing. They're like, you have to say a different word, or they're like the A word or something, just so that the horse doesn't just immediately start going. It's like it's like people spelling out walk so their dog doesn't freak out. It's, it's yeah. the exact same thing. That's really I've, good. And it's it's really funny because the horses they get into it and they're like, okay, we're gonna run and or yeah. whatever. And they're like uh, and they've gone. And you're like, no, we need you to still be shot actually. <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I do know, like, Viggo Mortensen talked about Uraeus becoming kind of like a ham for the camera yeah. um, over time. And, and and also, like, particularly if you reward that, I'm one of the strong aspects of training is often using positive reinforcement and having a marker and giving some kind of food reward mm-hmm. is usually the way you'd work it with horses. It works a lot with dogs as well. That's used a lot in film training and trick training because it's really good for like they to build up some kind of dramatic action. You start small, and you let them figure it out as they go along, and you reward bigger and bigger tries. You'll often use that a lot. One of the things my wife has done is that now her little mule knows that if he puts his head over her shoulder for a selfie, he will probably get a reward. Oh, that's <laughs> so, so cute. It's ridiculously cute. And the other thing he's learned is that he can also sometimes get one by like peeping over one of the other horse's backs. And so he just uh-huh. gets this mule face uh-huh. looking at you. He knows the angles. Yeah, exactly. So I am very familiar with how an equine could be a ham because yeah. I've worked oh, yeah. this first hand. Uh, the horse I used to ride, Bozeman, would like beg for treats, blowing out his upper lip. Oh, you yeah, know? Like, like the Fleming response. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like once they get that, they're like, brilliant, here's my trick now. You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. part two, let's put this on command so we don't just get it the whole time. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's that's important. The unending button. Mm-hmm. With my little dog, Albert, like I taught him speak recently, but 
that means that anytime we start doing trick training or I get out treats, he's like, oh, you want me to bark a bunch now? <laughs> That's how I get a treat. And I'm like, no! No! <laughs> he's like, well, this worked last time. I got the treat, so I guess I should try yeah. it again. And, and that's very much how they think. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's how I think, too. Something. I I always expect to be <laughs> rewarded with, like, you know, lights and snacks. Yeah. That's that, why that... I'm making a podcast. Like, I talk and <laughs> you give me treats, What do you think right? we're doing here? Right. <laughs> well, that's good job I made some honey cakes earlier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, I have a question, which I feel like we have been remiss and not asking yeah. our other guests but needs to be a question going forward we have talked on the podcast before about what our lord of the rings horse sonas would be <laughs> what would your horse sona be what would my horse sona be like if i was one of the lord of the rings horses if you were a a horse in the lord of the rings universe yeah. what sort of horse would you be um oh answer to that i gotta consult the notes yeah i've got to consult my notes uh yeah i might be like gorolf <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's, that's kind of like he's a, he's a good he's horse. a good horse the original seal brown the original seal brown uh he really really sealed the deal Ayo. yeah he he's you know he's sturdy hairy horse pods around and uh, shows up a couple of times and probably spent the rest of the draft type. Like I say, I feel like I'm inclined to yeah. the draft type. Definitely he's mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I feel that. I, that's that's who I identify with. Yeah, that's a good answer. <sighs> um, I don't... Do we have any other... I don't know. I feel like we've touched other... on most of the big things we want to touch yeah, about, but... Then if there's anything that you want to, like, soapbox about or circle back around to? Yeah, I was, I was just trying to talk, think of that. But we have kind of rambled over a huge amount of ground. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very conscious. That's the thing. It's grazing. It's grazing. It is grazing. We, <laughs> yes. we are inf informationally grazing around the p equestrian pastures, um, which, honestly, the horses aren't going to be over the moon about. <laughs> like, that's kind of our job, guys. Um <laughs> So yeah, I, I think I think we've uh, covered a lot of ground. I'm sure I will spend next week going. I know what I went to say, but that's fine. <laughs> I can tell I yeah. can tell you about it. I'll tell you on Twitter. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. If yeah. if there's anything, if you remember the whatever we said in a previous episode <laughs> that you wanted to add to, or you know anything comes up, like absolutely yeah, email us. Standing standing podcast ghost invitation. <laughs> I yeah. appreciate it. Oh, there was one thing I was thinking about. This is kind of apropos of nothing. But uh, mm -hmm. if you do want a deputy Peter Jackson complainer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I, I, I want to hear. What's, what are your like biggest Peter Jackson complaints? Okay, so my... In 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 brief. In brief. Um, and I'm not even going to mention like my biggest... Peter Jackson complaint is roughly three Hobbit movies, but restrict, right. restricting yeah. to those, the, those don't, don't even exist, exist in yeah. my head. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Although the soundtrack oh. is fine. It has some nice tunes on it. And I would love to see, I've forgotten his name now, the guy who plays Bard. I would love to see him play Gwydion in an adaptation of Lloyd Alexander's Chron Chronicles of Pridden. 
because oh. those are magical books and he's like handsome and welsh and very cool and i would yeah. love to see him play that what is that actor i can't remember his name well you but, look that um, up caitlin ben tell me your your actual the big thing yeah. about peter jackson is you've got to think of his roots which uh-huh. is those first couple of gross out splatter movies yeah at least once a movie he has to go back to that Mm-hmm. And he always makes it worse when he does. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, scary green skeletons. Just can't you just leave it once, Peter Jackson, and not have a scary green skeleton? I, I was thinking of it particularly was reading the passage through the dead marshes, and you're like, this is kind of creepy. When there's just the glimpse of the wisps over the fen. And then he looks down and the dead faces deep beneath the water. Ah, yes, Mm -hmm. we cannot reach them. They are far beneath. Mm -hmm. He doesn't fall face first into it and go, ooh, scary skeleton ghost land. Right. Every time that Peter Jackson is filming something underwater, someone needs to tell him no. It's always a mistake. Yeah. It does go wrong, doesn't it? The one moment, the one underwater moment that works for me is is part of the the frodo sam moment it's just it's the hand grab like oh, hand sam grab, yeah. flailing underwater but what we don't we need, don't need right, to see the whole but but the like frodo's hand closing over his wrist and then that moment of hesitation and then sam like grabbing back that's beautiful yeah. like that's what i want to see that's, that's, <laughs> that's the part that matters but yeah and, and so every time he leans into that and likewise mm-hmm. the whole Instead of a dark lord, you would have a queen. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the old Rankin Bass versions. I don't really like the way they drew characters at all. But in that film, she kind of goes almost a bit girly and kind of gets a bit more sweet. And it makes it much more menacing. Yeah. Mm. Like almost anything. And again, in the radio production, she just gets more strident her voice changes and she doesn't go into a weird overlay audio thing with like a massive pitch shifter i'm like this isn't a brian may guitar solo you could just (laughs) like you've got a good actor here let her do her job Yeah. yeah and so yeah there's there's a bunch of places like that and there's necessities of film as well like something you get from the book that when you watch it on film it's a long journey. They're going across the world. Mm-hmm. And the film, it feels like they kind of spend an afternoon or two doing it. They're like, oh, yeah, we went out for a bit of a jaunt, dropped a ring of a volcano, mm-hmm. came home, cushed it. And like, I get why that, that's the dynamic of film. It doesn't flow like that. But it creates such a different feeling. Yeah. When it feels like they've gone a long way, when it feels like they've spent weeks or months traveling rather than a few days yeah and i don't know how you would or could convey that but i I feel it a lot when i transfer between them. yeah absolutely yeah i think about how they would convey that and like a thing that i could very easily see peter jackson doing is the um like time lapse you know of like the the sun rising and setting again and again over a landscape and i don't want that but i agree that it really it it does miss something for not having that that sense of the scale of time that is passing. Yeah. I yeah, mean, exactly. like it's... in just these chapters, 
Frodo and Sam like trying to get through these hills and like sort of down again and getting like increasingly desperate and hopeless. And there is just such a sense of like time and atmosphere and all of this stuff. And so then when like Gollum shows up and offers them away, there's a lot more context for them being like, yes, we need a guide. It just like sets it up so much more fully and, like, we've already seen these moments in the movie, and I didn't get any sense of that. Like, they're just like, oh, they climbed down a cliff on a rope. Right. Now Gollum is yeah. there. There's there's a feeling, there's, like, a, a, a really tense feeling that is so critical to this part in the book that the movie doesn't capture very well, which is that yeah. the truth at the same time that we are, one, in a horrible rush, and two, time is moving interminably slow. Yeah. Yeah. And also, there's a feeling of, like, if you walk through trackless trackless country it sometimes takes days because there's a valley you have to go around like literally you just don't know what's around the corner and i was thinking as they came down from uh Mm -hmm. i was thinking about maps and maplessness and sam and frodo don't have a map yeah and so they're so lost and out of their depth and it's taking them time because they have to take all these round trips and extra stuff and they don't have a guide and it really brings home again it makes the necessity of having Gollum much clearer because he does know but the other thing is Tolkien has mapped everything out and so when he describes this vista he knows what's there and he describes this incredible span with the Anduin and the mountains and the marshes and the mist over the marshes and Dagorland. And he knew that whole vista and he can describe it as a landscape yeah. that has a reality that I think comes partly from the way he loves making maps. Yeah, yeah and it, it does set up this really interesting like tension as a reader because of how like he wants you as a reader to know exactly where you are in the landscape and gives you the maps for them too. And so then he sets you yeah. up for this really interesting experience of like the frustration of you knowing where the characters are and the characters not knowing. Yeah, like there's yeah. this like dramatic irony happening yeah. there in a sense. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's almost a relationship between an illustration and the narrative, mm-hmm. which is uh, like these secondary artifacts that still inform what we understand by it. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's really interesting. And, and yeah, so I, so I love that feeling in the book of they are making a great journey. And again, also then it's a Faramir thing as well that he particularly exemplifies is. There's this phrase that I I first heard describing the writing of Guy Gavriel Kay, who is one of my favourite writers, which is numinous melancholy. I feel like that's something that Tolkien exemplifies well. It's a, it is a world in autumn. Mm-hmm. It's a world where the leaves of Lorien are falling and we will not see them flower again. Spring will not return to this forest. And the, the same long in, way round starts yeah. flying. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Ithilien is similar. Faramir talks about how, in a way, Gondor has fallen. Not only is like, we delight in war, and before we were artists and builders and scholars and craftsmen, and he's, and he is in a way that scholar who's been forced into war. And there's a thing in wider fantasy that I think you get that people don't think about, which is you often have a central character who is a super tough fighter. And 
if you are a fighter and a killer and all those things, you're destructive. When you're done with those things, what have you made in the world? How there's a kind of tragedy there. Yeah. If all you're good at is damaging and destroying. And you think that's a world, you know, gardeners must be held in high esteem. Oh, because yeah. a gardener gardeners must be held in high esteem. A gardener is creating and growing and every year their garden maybe is a little better or they've found new things to grow or got better at what they're doing. And to me, that's what horsemanship is as well. It's something, you know, if I was the best fighter in the world, but I'd never trained a good horse, I would be less for it. There, There is a tragedy in being someone whose true skill is destruction. I think a lot of authors don't explore that. And I think it's something that Tolkien actually touches on in an interesting way. And again, I wonder if it's because he had been involved in war. He had seen it and knew what it involved in a way that most modern writers have less exposure to. It's kind of impossible to read, like, the descriptions of the great Ashfield in front of the Black Gates of Mordor. And I know this is not a perfectly analogous lens to like how Tolkien was writing about the destroyed landscape. Although there, there is some like sympathetic resonance there behind, like seeing like the, the remnants of the landscape after trench warfare, but it's impossible to read this in 2020 and not think about climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The inherent evil of this landscape is not because the place is evil, but because people have put it to like evil use and destroyed it uh, in a way that is like unrecoverable. Um, And that, that that hits yeah. differently right now, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Tolkien I mean, loved landscapes. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure, like, it was, it was not... It was the war, certainly, but also, like, you know, at the time Tolkien was writing, like, we're well into, like, industrial... Like, the Industrial Revolution has happened, right? Mm-hmm. And he is absolutely aware of, like, the changes that that has wrought. Right. And I, I feel so much of that in, like, all of the stuff about Saruman and Sauron and sort of technology and like pollution all feels like it's about the industrial revolution basically yeah Um, yeah yeah in in that sense and again in the in the Midlands where he came from that was the heart of industrial Britain that was the engine of industrial Britain so he had seen that and he'd seen Mm -hmm. the changes from like the rolling Oxfordshire landscape to this kind of Mm-hmm. the mills there was a huge industrialization that came about as a result of the first world war and all of that he would have seen Absolutely. and he was seeing that technology change but there's an interesting counterpoint to that in a way in that um you may have seen on twitter some of the views from my yard where we look across at these kind of rolling patchwork hills the top of the opposite hill from us was one of the biggest collieries in the country. And all of this was a massive coal mining area. Uh And the mines closed and the facilities had closed down. And actually, we're becoming a kind of brownfields rural environment. Uh It's now fields again. Yeah. And that changed. And and actually, here, we've been lucky, like in other parts of the UK, where I used to live, It got to where you could leave a light on and a window open at night and have hardly a moth come in. Mm -hmm. 
And here, the amount of insects you see all the time is so much higher. And I think it's because it's pasture. It's not yeah. sprayed. It's not. It's not arable land. It's kind of grazing, mm-hmm. and partly because it's a little faded. It was. It was agricultural land, and then it became mining land, and now it doesn't know quite what it is. And there's a culture that was very wounded by that, by the loss of mining in the 1980s. That left a generation at loose ends, and has left a cultural scar on South Wales as a whole. Mm-hmm. But. The nature of the place is recovering. The wildlife is regrowing, and in places you can see where the fields aren't tended, you see hedgerows spread out to forest, mm. like really mm-hmm. quickly because you've already got a band of trees. They're seeding yeah. out beside yeah. them, and like so Fangorn walking, <laughs> expanding. It is like Fangorn walking. Wow. It, it's it is a world that can recover, and I think that's the thing we have to remember as well that. It's not all failure. There are paths to recovery. Yeah. Well, and the thing, the thing that Tolkien talks about all the time, which is that you can't let your own personal despair overwhelm your willingness to take action. Yeah. I, I'm also, I'm very, I'm amusing myself over here thinking about um, the like eco-fascism, like accounts that have sprung up in 2020 with like the nature is healing, except it's a picture of like ants hurling rocks at Orthang with the <laughs> caption, nature is healing, smiley face. I love those nature is healing things. Uh, They're just so, uh, they've gone so wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so uh, here I have a bit, it's like, what hope have we? said Faramir. It is long since we had any hope. The sword of Elendil, if it returns indeed, may rekindle it, but I do not think that it will do more than put off the evil day, unless other help, unlooked for, also comes, for elves or men. For the enemy increases, and we decrease. We are a failing people, a springless autumn. I think that's pretty... uh, I just think that kind of... There's no hope, but we can't give up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the passage I was looking for is um, uh, kind of about this, like, you know, the the warrior type. Faramir says, For as the Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slayings, we esteem a warrior, nonetheless, above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days. So even was my brother Boromir, a man of prowess, and for that he was accounted the best man in Gondor. And it just, like, I mean, it gives it all to us right there, like this very clear picture of, like, the way, yeah, I don't know, kind of the rising of, like, that warrior archetype, um, but also the the problems of that, because... Like what? I mean, and then Boromir does die. I mean, I'm actually, it's very interesting to me that like, yes, Aragorn is a warrior, but that's not like, he's, he's not the fighter, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's very true. And Boromir is, and Boromir dies early on. And then the rest of the story is this party of people who are not the fighter. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. You know, making the rest of it happen and figuring out how to. Yeah, carry on. and and so in in a way, it's like, and when you have that pride in that alone, sooner or later you'll be carried away on hubris. 
That's what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Oh. oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I, I was just wondering, and this is this is something that someone engaged in Tolkien scholarship could do. I wouldn't be surprised if you went through the books and just went line by line if Aragorn didn't actually spend more time making up poems than being in fights. Yeah, and also healing people. Yeah. He's yeah. like taking care of his bros all the time. The hands of the king. We were just talking about this the other <laughs> day. Yeah, in yeah. the episode that hasn't aired yet, but we have <laughs> recorded. But yeah, I mean, he he spends his time singing sad songs, taking care of his bros. <laughs> yeah. Having weird visions of Arwen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get over the like, Brigo Arwen. That is so kiss. funny. I'm also it's... still reeling over in this world. A gardener must be held oh, in highest esteem. Such a great line, isn't it? Um, yeah, no, I, I love that Brigo. You know, having been the Peter Jackson complainer to a degree, I will say that's a masterpiece shot. Just so funny. Yeah, and and it's like just a great deliberate yeah. visual joke. Um, yeah, and and that's you know, that's the other thing is that. The book has space for more humour. Yes. And so the film's counterpart, partly by having Merry and Pippin having become more like clowns. Yeah. yeah. But it also, like, it does have some very witty shots like that, which are quite interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, just a kind of knowing wink. Any uh, kind of closing thoughts or remarks? Um, closing thoughts. Sorry, I'm generally thinking I haven't. Yeah, yeah, no, my you're good. Hasn't frozen. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll just glance through my notes because I got the thing. I got the thing I meant to say when you said, "Was there something ages ago?" You talked oh. about leading, leading from the left. Oh yeah. yeah. In possibly the last episode. Yeah. Yes. You do conventionally lead from the left, uh-huh. but. I would say it's bad policy to lead from the left. Strictly. Interesting. So is it so because of that like that you want horses to be sort of evenly worked and balanced? Absolutely. That's that's a big part of it. I want them I want them to feel that. And what often happens, like most people use a too short lead rope. Mm-hmm. I only use ten foot ropes or longer, mm-hmm. which is quite long. Mm-hmm. Um, because then also if I need to if I have a 10-foot rope and the horse is jumping up and down, they're 10 feet away. Right. If I have a f- four-foot rope, they're right on top of me. Yeah. Right. So I would rather they can get a horse distance away before doing something ridiculous. And my horse I had a few years ago would do ridiculous stuff, so I needed yeah, it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but also, you want them to be able to work symmetrically. Yeah. So you want to be able to lead from both sides. And in this country, we drive on the left. So right. if we're in traffic, I need to be on the right of my horse. Yeah, between your horse and traffic. Yeah, yeah, because if they're going to jump, mm-hmm. I want them to jump away from traffic, not into mm-hmm. it. But also, if I'm leading down a track, I want to be able to change sides. So if there's something spooky on their left, I want to be able to lead from their left. If there's something spooky on their right, I want to be able to lead from the right. Horses have eyes on the side of their head. Right. We've talked about this, I think, previously. But what that means is that they don't have great stereo vision. And in fact, the central part of the brain, the corpus callosum, Mm -hmm. is very slow. 
to the point that there's something they've seen in their right eye, the message can take, a, I've heard it reported, up to 45 minutes to get to the other side of their brain. Oh my, God. oh my gosh. <laughs> Which is why you could ride past something, be absolutely fine, ride back the other way, and the horse loses it. Mm. Because they're like, oh my God, what's this? I've never seen because this in brain this eye. processes and stores that information yeah. totally differently. Because it doesn't need to. Because right. it's, they're not they're not a forward-facing predator. Yeah. So their eyes are on the side of their head. And so so you want them to be able to see things and work in both sides. Often if you only lead from one side, they tend to get jammed up in the shoulder, especially with these short lead ropes. Mm-hmm. They're spending their whole time trying not to tread on you or maybe pushing you a little bit. It depends on the horse. <laughs> and that shoulder then gets very used to doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. that and so they start sense. developing asymmetrically. Um, and the musculature gets asymmetrical, and then that can affect your saddle fit. That can affect a lot of things. Sure. And also in their mind, one side of their mind's used to seeing you, the other side's not. Right. Now, if you did, if you led a horse a lot from the left, then you get on their back for the first time. The biggest thing that causes trouble when you first get on a horse is this changing eyes. So you're in their left eye, you lean across their back, suddenly you're in their right eye. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do about it. They run out from under you and now you've got a problem. So you want to get them really accustomed to you changing eyes. And so the more you can do with that, and that's why a lot of people use long reining when they're getting a horse ready to ride, because then you're changing, you're behind them. You'll go from one side, you change, you change. And every time you change, you pass behind them, you change eyes. That's a really good preparation for what will happen when they're ready. That makes total sense. Well, because like, I mean... I remember like when I would, you know, when lunging horses, like I, you always go both directions, you know, like you yeah. don't right, just you don't do the just one. Do and life. if you're riding around an arena, you have to switch so that they're not always turning the same direction. Yeah. And so, I mean, it makes perfect sense that leading. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a holdover from like, it shows like how far I didn't get in my own yeah. like riding education because it's like the way you teach people things is you start with these really broad catechisms like you always yeah. you like you know like you do x you do you, you always do x x always applies x is always true yeah. and then like as you kind of develop it's like oh, but there are these exceptions and these nuances yeah. and so yeah. yeah i mean it's, it's like, like a yeah. playing like a bowed stringed instrument and you're starting you're like you always put the bow here on the string and hold it at this angle right and then once yeah. you have like, once you can do that really consistently, then you start varying it in specific moments for reasons. And it's, yeah, that kind of learning It's the, the way I very bitterly felt about like math education, which is like, they tell you all these things are always true and it's a yeah. lie. And it's like every year it's like, okay, here are all the lies we told you the year before to oh, help you yeah. understand it. Now here's mm-hmm. the truth. So, so there's a thing, I think you were talking about doing logic at one point. <laughs> Uh, oh my god! Yeah. And funnily, funnily enough, I did logic having done maths uh, at sixth form college, which I think is our equivalent to high school, like a little before mm, university. Yeah. And when I did logic, I was like, "This is algebra in slow motion." Yeah. This is what explains why algebra yeah. works. And then I was like, "Yes, this is low enough level that I can actually understand mm-hmm. it." And honestly, probably that's the biggest bit of my philosophy degree that went on to being useful as a programmer ah uh, yeah 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 that makes <laughs> turn, perfect turn sense out, there, that makes total sense yeah there wasn't much money in contemplating existence so yeah uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you're talking to a uh, theater philosophy music major. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I dropped out of journalism school to be on tour with a band, so like, very cool. Though. We none of us, none of us get it. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. So that leaning on left thing as well. Sometimes that's just a tradition. Some a lot of these traditions come out of cavalry. We had new recruits. You needed to tell them ABC and you needed to do the least you could to keep them out of trouble. Mm. And so you had horses that knew how to lead from the left. You had people that knew how to lead from the left. It was regimented. It was as close to making the horse a machine as it could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My philosophy is as far from making the horse a machine as it can be. Yeah. And so I diverge very right. widely from those philosophies because of that, because I want to treat each horse as an individual and right. find the ways in which they can shine. Yeah. Yeah. It's about acknowledging the humanity of the horse as much as possible. Mm. The horse, yeah. horse city. Yeah. Horse the horsality. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what it is. It's, it's, it's their nature and their personhood. Right. And the more you do that, the more you can share with them. It's like equanimity. And <laughs> equanimity that's your word got it look at you here with this vocabulary <laughs> you and your fancy talking words um yeah no so that that's that's really great so that's the thing that i meant to say a little while ago good job i checked my notes good job you checked the notes <laughs> good, good job i took some notes thank you i'm i'm glad to know that i think the last thing is just where at, like, do you want to, um, you know, share your Twitter handle or your podcasts Twitter yeah. or, you know, any of that? Feel free to plug yeah. what you want to plug. <laughs> if you want to uh, find more of my nonsense or ask me uh, horse questions, you can always find me as Glenatron on Twitter. And you can listen to the podcast I make, Crudely Drawn Swords, on literally any podcast <laughs> app. Uh, the name Crudely Drawn Swords largely came from what the rest of the players started drawing the moment they had access to Roll20. <laughs> so if you don't want to be around some very childish people, it might not be for you. But at the same time, it is, in my opinion, both very funny and a big story that actually gets to some really interesting places. And I've had feedback from several people playing it that I'm just literally ripping off Lord of the Rings and <laughs> let's guess you're just doing the same thing Tolkien did. So, you know, there might be a crossover of interest. Okay. Yeah. And if anyone's in love with the idea of mules, I recommend reading Mulography, which ah. is at mulography.co.uk. M-U-L-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y, I think. I just felt that out and it sounded wrong in my mind. Anyway, there's only one more. You may have forgotten that. R, but now I've forgotten. But we'll put it in the <laughs> in the description. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you. you so much for. Um, I, I feel like we went to a, a whole variety of interesting places today. <laughs> yeah, it's a grand tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in more yeah. circles than the mountains around Mordor inexplicably do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's the Shadowfax way. If there's a better way, no one heard of it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The music you heard at the beginning was Horse by Horse, arranged and performed by us, Caitlin and Joey. You can listen to it again at soundcloud.com slash shadowfaxpod. The cover art was made by Annie Johnston Glick at Dancy Nuru on Twitter. 
I'm Caitlin. My pronouns are she, they, and you can follow me on Twitter at Behold. You can follow the show at ShadowFactsPod and email your horse-related LOTR questions to ShadowFactsPod at gmail.com. Again, that is ShadowFacts, F-A-C-T-S. Joining me on this journey there and back again is... Joey. My pronouns are they, them, and you can follow me on Twitter at JoeyThePrince. If you want to read and watch along, check the episode description for the segment we'll cover next time. This has been Shadow Facts. One horse to rule them all! Ha 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 ha!